Welcome to Money Mayhem, exploring the most electrifying episodes of Wall Street's wild history and beyond. Written by Trader Joe, a secretive Wall Street insider with 30 years of experience under their belt, each series pulls back the curtain of Wall Street and beyond, revealing the clandestine maneuvers, obscure tactics, and closely guarded strategies that shape the financial world. In this episode, Bubble Trouble Diaries, the spectacular saga of the 2008 financial meltdown, we dive deep into one of the most turbulent periods in modern financial history. With captivating storytelling, memorable anecdotes, and a healthy dose of humor, Bubble Trouble Diaries, the spectacular saga of the 2008 financial meltdown, promises to be an unforgettable journey. Don't miss out on this thrilling adventure. Before we continue, a word from our sponsor who makes this podcast possible. Introducing the Mitzi Motsi Discovery app, a captivating foreign language learning experience for children aged 2 to 7. Research shows that early foreign language learning enhances critical thinking, problem solving, and creativity. With the Mitzi Motsi app, children can explore English, Spanish, Mandarin, French, and more. Your subscription grants access to over 250 interactive ebooks. So download the Mizzy Motsi Discovery app and start your child on a magical language journey with a free 30-day trial. You can find the App Store download links in this episode's description. And now, on with this episode of Money Mayhem. Here's what you can look forward to. Part 1. The Housing Boom Goes Bust. The Subprime Saga. Get ready to explore the subprime mortgage bubble, the seemingly innocent spark that ignited the 2008 crisis. Dive into the world of ninja loans and adjustable rate mortgages as we recount the tales of ordinary people and their struggles during an overheating housing market. Part 2. Wall Street's Wild Ride. Derivatives, CDOs, and credit default swaps. Hold on tight as we delve into the complex world of financial engineering. Discover how Wall Street's reckless appetite for derivatives, collateralized debt obligations, CDOs, and credit default swaps, CDS, transformed the mortgage market into a ticking time bomb. Part 3. The Fall of the Financial Titans, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and AIG. Witness the dramatic downfall of financial giants like Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and AIG as the crisis spirals out of control. Uncover the frantic behind-the-scenes negotiations and scandalous anecdotes that marked their collapse and sent shockwaves through the global financial system. Part 4. Panic on Main Street. The Impact on Everyday People. In this emotional episode, we'll share heart-wrenching stories from everyday people whose lives were upended by the crisis. Learn about the devastating consequences for homeowners, job seekers, and investors as the economy teeters on the brink of disaster. Part 5. The TARP Strikes Back. The Battle for Financial Stability. Join us for the thrilling finale as governments and central banks step in to save the day with the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, and other extraordinary measures. Revisit the heated debates and daring decisions that helped avert a total financial meltdown and shaped the post-crisis world. So, welcome to Bubble Trouble Diaries, the spectacular saga of the 2008 financial meltdown. Part 1 the housing boom goes bust. The subprime saga. 
We're going to take you on a whirlwind ride through the early stages of the 2008 financial crisis. So buckle up, folks, because we're about to explore the housing market bubble and the risky lending practices that set the stage for the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. All right, let's start with a little backstory. In the early 2000s, the housing market in the United States was booming. Property values were skyrocketing, and everybody wanted a piece of the action. Lenders, fueled by greed and the prospect of making a quick buck, began offering mortgages to just about anyone who could sign their name on the dotted line. This resulted in what's known as subprime mortgages being offered to individuals with poor credit scores and little to no income verification. But that's not all, folks. These subprime mortgages were then bundled into financial products called Mortgage-Backed Securities, MBS. And this is where it gets really interesting. These MBS products were bought and sold by banks and other financial institutions like hotcakes, creating a highly interconnected and fragile system that was just one domino away from toppling over. Now, let's dive into one of the most notorious examples of the reckless lending practices that fueled the housing bubble. Meet Bill, a hot dog vendor who had a dream of owning a home. Bill had no credit history, a modest income, and no savings. But guess what? A lender approved him for a mortgage anyway. Why? Because at the time, it seemed like housing prices would keep going up forever. As long as that happened, the bank could always sell the property if Bill defaulted on his mortgage. What could go wrong, right? Well, as you might have guessed, things didn't go as planned. The housing market began to show signs of weakness as interest rates started to rise. Homeowners with adjustable-rate mortgages like our friend Bill saw their monthly mortgage payments shoot up, making them difficult, if not impossible, to pay. And now, for our first anecdote. Picture this. It's a sunny day in a suburban neighborhood, and you see a row of houses with well-manicured lawns. Everything seems perfect, but then you notice something strange. A big yellow sign slapped on the front door of one of the houses. It reads, Foreclosure. This was becoming an all-too-common sight as the housing bubble began to deflate and the first cracks in the foundation of the U.S. financial system began to appear. So, let's talk about another fascinating character who played a role in the early stages of the crisis, Fabulous Fabrice Touré. Fabrice was a 28-year-old trader at Goldman Sachs who, at the peak of the housing boom, managed a portfolio of mortgage-backed securities. He would later become infamous for his cavalier attitude toward the impending crisis, once writing in an email to a friend, The whole building is about to collapse any time now. Only potential survivor, the fabulous fab, standing in the middle of all these complex, highly leveraged exotic trades he created without necessarily understanding all of the implications of those monstrosities. As more and more homeowners began to default on their mortgages, the MBS products that banks and financial institutions were trading like Pokemon cards began to lose value. And since these institutions were so intertwined, the crisis started to spread like wildfire. The stage was set for the dramatic unraveling of the global financial system. Part 2. Wall Street's Wild Ride, Derivatives, CDOs, and Credit Default Swaps Previously, we discussed the early stages of the 2008 financial crisis, which began with the collapse of the housing market and the spread of toxic mortgage-backed securities. 
Let's resume our journey through the thrilling chaos that ensued as banks and financial institutions teetered on the brink of disaster, with governments scrambling to avert a full-blown economic meltdown. Our story continues with the epic downfall of two major players in the U.S. financial market, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. But before we go there, let's take a moment to dive deeper into the world of complex financial instruments like derivatives, CDOs, and credit default swaps, which helped turn a housing market downturn into a full-blown global crisis. In the years leading up to the crisis, Wall Street was gripped by a frenzy of innovation in financial engineering. As banks and investment firms raced to create new and complex financial products, derivatives like collateralized debt obligations, CDOs, and credit default swaps, CDS, became increasingly popular. These instruments played a crucial role in spreading the risk of subprime mortgages throughout the global financial system, ultimately leading to a chain reaction of catastrophic failures when the housing bubble burst. To help us understand how these instruments worked and why they were so alluring, let's follow the story of a young investment banker who we'll call Mike. Fresh out of business school, Mike was eager to make a name for himself in the fast-paced world of Wall Street. He soon found himself at the heart of the derivatives market, working on the trading floor of a prestigious investment bank. Mike and his colleagues were responsible for creating and selling CDOs, which bundled together various types of debt including mortgages, auto loans, and credit card debt. By pooling these debts together and slicing them into different tranches with varying levels of risk, they could offer investors a wide range of investment opportunities, with higher yields for those willing to take on more risk. At the time, it seemed like a win-win situation. We were making huge profits for our bank, and investors were happy with the attractive returns on their investments. But as the housing market began to sour, we started to realize just how much risk we had taken on. To hedge against the risk of these CDOs, banks and investors turned to another type of derivative, credit default swaps. A credit default swap is essentially an insurance policy on a debt instrument, like a bond or a mortgage-backed security. The buyer of the CDS pays a premium to the seller, and in return, the seller agrees to compensate the buyer if the debt instrument defaults. Anecdote alert. As the housing market continued to heat up, so too did the market for credit default swaps. Mike recalls the intensity of those days on the trading floor. We were trading CDS like there was no tomorrow, thinking we were insulated from any risk. But what we didn't realize was that we were creating an interconnected web of obligations that would come crashing down when the housing bubble burst. When the inevitable happened and the housing market began to decline, the domino effect of these complex financial instruments quickly became apparent. As the value of mortgage-backed securities and CDOs plummeted, the insurance policies provided by credit default swaps proved to be woefully insufficient. Many firms that had sold CDS found themselves unable to cover the massive payouts they owed, leading to a cascade of failures throughout the financial system. For Mike, the realization of the damage they had done was a sobering moment. I remember standing on the trading floor, watching as everything came crashing down around us, he says. The worst part was knowing that we had played a role in creating this mess. I had always believed that we were the smartest guys in the room, but in the end, we were just as blind to the risks as everyone else. Anecdote alert. As the dust began to settle and the extent of the damage became clear, 
Mike was left to reflect on his role in the crisis. I'll never forget the feeling of watching it all unravel, he says. It was a wake-up call for me and many others on Wall Street. We had to face the fact that our pursuit of profit and innovation had contributed to a global disaster. So, back to the banks. Bear Stearns was one of the largest investment banks in the world, and its rapid descent into chaos in March 2008 sent shockwaves through the financial industry. Here's a crazy little tidbit for you. Bear Stearns' stock was trading at $159 per share in January 2007, but by March 2008, it had plummeted to an unbelievable $2 per share. It was eventually sold to J.P. Morgan Chase in a fire sale with the help of the U.S. Federal Reserve. Now, if you thought that was a roller coaster ride, hold on to your hats because the real nail-biter was yet to come. Lehman Brothers, another giant of the financial world, was about to suffer an even more spectacular fall from grace. The once mighty bank was drowning in toxic assets tied to the crumbling housing market, and in September 2008, it filed for the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. And here's a wild anecdote for you. Lehman's bankruptcy announcement on September 15, 2008, was so shocking that the very next day, a group of bankers and traders gathered in London's Canary Wharf district to hold a mock funeral for the bank, complete with a makeshift coffin and a funeral procession. Talk about gallows humor. The collapse of Lehman Brothers had a domino effect on the financial system, causing a credit crunch and sending the stock market into a tailspin. In response, governments around the world began stepping in to prop up their ailing financial institutions. In the U.S., the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, was established, allocating a staggering $700 billion to rescue banks teetering on the edge of collapse. As the crisis intensified, iconic figures from the world of finance became household names overnight. Remember Neutron Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric, who famously said, leadership is about taking people with you on a journey? Well, Little did he know that his own company would find itself on a perilous journey through the 2008 financial crisis. GE's shares plunged, and the company found itself fighting for survival in the wake of the Lehman Brothers collapse. So, where did that leave the average American? Millions of people lost their jobs, homes, and life savings as the economy entered a deep recession. The human cost of the crisis was immense, with countless heart-wrenching stories emerging from every corner of the country. But as with any great story, there's always a silver lining. The 2008 financial crisis led to significant reforms and regulations aimed at preventing such a disaster from happening again. And for those who managed to hold on through the turmoil, the stock market eventually recovered, reaching new all-time highs in the years that followed. The crisis also sparked a renewed interest in financial education and awareness, empowering individuals to take control of their financial futures and better understand the risks associated with investing. Part 3. Rise of the 99%. Occupy Wall Street and the Quest for Accountability. Previously, we delved into the origins of the 2008 financial crisis, exploring how reckless lending practices and complex financial products led to the downfall of major financial institutions and a global economic meltdown. 
Now we'll take you on another thrilling ride as we uncover the rise of the Occupy Wall Street movement, the public outcry against income inequality, and the role of credit rating agencies in the crisis. Picture this. It's September 17, 2011, and hundreds of protesters descend upon New York City's financial district with a clear message, we are the 99%. This marked the beginning of the Occupy Wall Street movement, a protest that sought to bring attention to the widening wealth gap, corporate greed, and the influence of money in politics. The movement quickly spread across the nation, with cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, and Boston hosting their own Occupy protests. Anecdote alert. One of the most notable figures to emerge from the Occupy Wall Street movement was a man known as the Human Megaphone. Whenever speakers addressed the crowd, this individual would repeat their words loudly so that everyone could hear, effectively serving as a human amplifier. The use of the Human Megaphone quickly became a symbol of the movement's grassroots nature and community spirit. Occupy Wall Street did more than just unite protesters against income inequality. It also created a platform for individuals to share their personal experiences with the financial crisis. From families who lost their homes to foreclosure to recent college graduates burdened by student debt and unable to find work, the movement highlighted the devastating human toll of the economic collapse. Now. Let's turn our attention to another significant player in the financial crisis, credit rating agencies. These agencies, such as Moody's, Standard & Poor's, and Fitch, were responsible for assessing the creditworthiness of financial products, like mortgage-backed securities, which, as we learned in Episode 1, played a central role in the crisis. As it turns out, credit rating agencies had a glaring conflict of interest as they were paid by the very institutions that issued the securities they were rating. This cozy relationship ultimately led to inflated ratings, giving investors a false sense of security and contributing to the bubble that eventually burst. Anecdote alert. In the aftermath of the crisis, it was revealed that some employees at credit rating agencies were aware of the risks associated with these complex financial products. A famous quote from an internal email at one of these agencies stated, It could be structured by cows and we would rate it. This striking admission underscores the disregard for risk and the pursuit of profit that permeated the financial industry during this time. In the midst of the 2008 financial crisis, the U.S. government faced a daunting question. Should they intervene to save the struggling financial institutions or let the market correct itself? Ultimately, the government chose to step in, initiating a series of bailouts that would total over $700 billion. Anecdote alert. A former Wall Street trader who we'll call Sam recalls the day when the government announced its first round of bailouts. The news, he says, was met with both relief and disbelief on the trading floor. I remember thinking, is this really happening? Are we really getting bailed out? Sam's initial reaction quickly gave way to anger as he considered the broader implications of the government's decision. I knew we messed up, but I didn't think the government would come to our rescue, he says. It was like being rewarded for bad behavior. The government's bailout plan, known as the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, aimed to stabilize the financial system and prevent a complete economic collapse. The program primarily provided cash injections to banks, essentially propping them up with taxpayer money. The bailouts sparked a fierce ethical debate, 
with critics arguing that they set a dangerous precedent by allowing banks to engage in risky behavior with the expectation that the government would always be there to save them. On the other hand, proponents of the bailouts argued that the potential consequences of allowing the banks to fail, massive job losses, a collapse of the housing market, and a global economic downturn were too dire to risk. Anecdote alert. One small business owner, who we'll call Janet, found herself caught in the crossfire of the bailout debate. When her bank went under during the crisis, she was unable to secure a new loan to keep her business afloat. It was infuriating to see these big banks getting bailed out while my business, which had been thriving for years, was being left to die, she recalls. It felt like the government was only interested in helping the ones who had caused the crisis in the first place. While TARP and other bailout measures did help stabilize the financial system, they also had significant consequences, both intended and unintended. The bailouts led to an increase in government debt, stoking fears of future economic instability. They also fueled public anger, as many Americans saw the bailouts as evidence of a rigged system that favored the wealthy and powerful. Anecdote alert. A retired accountant, who we'll call George, remembers the sense of betrayal he felt when he learned that the government was using taxpayer money to bail out the banks. I'd spent my whole life playing by the rules and saving for retirement, he says. And then, in the blink of an eye, my investments were wiped out and my tax dollars were being used to save the same people who had gambled my money away. The bailout's ethical dilemma remains a subject of debate even today. As policymakers grapple with the challenge of preventing future financial crises without encouraging reckless behavior by financial institutions. In the years following the crisis, new regulations were put in place to strengthen oversight and reduce systemic risk in the financial system. However, critics argue that these measures haven't gone far enough to address the underlying issues that led to the 2008 crash. A former bank regulator who we'll call Susan was responsible for enforcing some of these new regulations. While she believes the measures have improved financial stability, she acknowledges that there's still work to be done. We've made progress, she says, but the truth is that there's no silver bullet for preventing another crisis. We need to remain vigilant and continue to push for a more just and accountable financial system. The ethical questions surrounding the bailouts highlight the complex relationship between the government, financial institutions, and individual taxpayers. As the memory of the 2008 crisis begins to fade, it's important to remember the lessons it taught us about the dangers of unchecked risk-taking and the role that both policymakers and individuals play in safeguarding our economic future. In the wake of the financial crisis and the rise of movements like Occupy Wall Street, demands for greater transparency and accountability within the financial industry grew louder. New regulations, such as the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, were implemented in an effort to prevent a repeat of the 2008 catastrophe. Though many argue that more still needs to be done to address the root causes of the crisis and prevent future economic disasters, the events of 2008 and the subsequent public outcry undeniably left a lasting impact on the financial landscape. Part 4. Panic on Main Street. The Impact on Everyday People. We've taken a deep dive into the lead-up and fallout of the financial crisis that shook the world well over a decade ago. 
Now we'll turn our focus to the people who were affected most, everyday individuals on Main Street. The 2008 financial crisis wasn't just about the big banks, Wall Street traders, and complex financial instruments. Millions of ordinary people were hit hard by the crisis as it rippled through the economy, causing job losses, foreclosures, and the evaporation of life savings. To understand the full impact of the crisis, we'll share a few personal stories from those who lived through it. First, let's meet Susan. Susan was a hard-working single mother of two, living in a suburban neighborhood in Florida. She had recently divorced and was working two jobs to support her family and make ends meet. Susan was also a proud homeowner, having recently purchased a modest house for herself and her children with a subprime mortgage. She was initially able to make her mortgage payments, but when her adjustable interest rates skyrocketed, she found herself struggling to keep up. I thought I was doing everything right, you know? I had a stable job, I was making my payments on time, but then suddenly the interest rate jumped and my mortgage payments went through the roof. I tried to refinance, but no one would help me. It felt like the walls were closing in. As Susan grappled with her mounting financial challenges, she started to worry about losing her home and what that would mean for her family. I couldn't sleep at night. I was constantly doing the math in my head, trying to figure out how to make it work. But the numbers just didn't add up. I felt like a failure, and I didn't know how I was going to tell my kids that we might have to leave our home. Unfortunately, Susan's story was not unique. Millions of families across the United States found themselves in similar situations with their homes, jobs, and financial stability on the line. Now let's turn our attention to Jack. Jack was a small business owner in the heart of Michigan. He had spent years building his auto repair shop from the ground up and was known in the community as an honest and reliable mechanic. But when the financial crisis hit, Jack's business took a turn for the worse. Jack, business just dried up almost overnight. People weren't coming in for routine maintenance or repairs. They were just trying to make their cars last as long as possible because they couldn't afford to spend money on anything but the essentials. I had to let go of half my staff, and I felt terrible about it. They had families to support, and I knew they were counting on me. Jack's struggles were echoed by small business owners nationwide. As consumer spending plummeted, many local businesses found themselves unable to keep their doors open. It felt like everything I had worked for was slipping away. I had poured my heart and soul into this business, and it felt like it was all for nothing. I just kept thinking, how did we get here? Let's hear from Sarah. Sarah was a recent college graduate who was just starting out on her career when the financial crisis hit. She had been offered a job at a prestigious investment bank, but just a few months after she started, the company went under. Sarah, I was so excited to begin my career in finance, but then everything came crashing down. It was surreal going from this high-energy environment where everyone was so focused on success to suddenly realizing that the company was going under. The atmosphere changed overnight, and people were panicking, trying to figure out what to do next. Sarah, like many other recent graduates, found herself suddenly facing a tough job market as the effects of the financial crisis rippled through various industries. Unemployment rates soared, and those who were able to find jobs often faced lower salaries and limited opportunities for advancement. Sarah, 
I went from being incredibly optimistic about my future to feeling completely lost. I moved back in with my parents and started applying for jobs, but there just wasn't much out there. It was a very humbling experience. Perhaps the story from one individual highlights the devastating effect the 2008 financial crisis had on an individual who was a world away from Wall Street. Meet Julia, a 45-year-old single mother of two who was living a comfortable life in a cozy suburban home just outside the city. Julia worked as a nurse at a local hospital, a job she was passionate about and proud of, and her children, Emily and Alex, were thriving in school. Life seemed to be moving in the right direction. In the years leading up to the 2008 financial crisis, Julia felt confident in her financial decisions. Encouraged by the booming housing market and her mortgage broker's persuasive pitch, she decided to refinance her home with an adjustable-rate mortgage, ARM, to free up some cash for home improvements and her children's college fund. The low initial interest rate was appealing, and she was assured that she could always refinance again if the rates started to rise. Unfortunately, the tide was about to turn. As the housing bubble burst, the value of Julia's home began to plummet, and her mortgage payments soared as the interest rate on her arm reset at a much higher rate. At the same time, the economic downturn started to take its toll on the hospital where she worked. Staff cuts were announced, and to make matters worse, her hours were significantly reduced, slashing her income just as her expenses were skyrocketing. Struggling to keep up with the mounting bills, Julia frantically searched for ways to make ends meet. She picked up extra shifts at a nearby nursing home, but the added hours took a toll on her health and her ability to care for her children. With every passing day, the weight of her financial burden grew heavier casting a dark cloud over the family's once happy home. The final straw came when Julia received a foreclosure notice. The bank was unwilling to negotiate new terms, and her home was scheduled for a sheriff's sale. The reality of losing the house she had worked so hard for was crushing, and the thought of her children being uprooted from their safe haven was unbearable. Desperate for a lifeline, Julia turned to friends and family for help swallowing her pride and admitting that she was in dire straits. Her parents offered to take the family in, providing a temporary solution to the impending homelessness they were facing. As they packed their belongings and left their beloved home behind, Julia's heart ached with a mix of sadness, fear, and guilt. In the years following the financial crisis, Julia's struggles continued. She found a full-time job at another hospital but the pay was significantly lower than what she had been earning before. Her dreams of helping her children through college had evaporated, leaving Emily and Alex to navigate the complex world of student loans and financial aid on their own. The once promising future that lay ahead for this family had been irrevocably altered by the devastating fallout of the 2008 financial crisis. Throughout it all, Julia demonstrated incredible resilience and determination. She fought to rebuild her life and to provide a sense of stability for her children. She became a vocal advocate for financial education and homeownership reform, sharing her story with others in hopes that it would help prevent similar hardships for other families. 
Julia's experience is a heart-wrenching reminder of the very real and personal consequences of the 2008 financial crisis. While we often focus on the macroeconomic impact and the downfall of major financial institutions, it is essential to remember that the crisis affected countless lives in profound and often tragic ways. It is through empathy, understanding, and learning from these stories that we can work towards creating a more stable and equitable financial system for all. The stories of Susan, Jack, Sarah, and Julia offer a glimpse into the widespread impact of the 2008 financial crisis on everyday people. They illustrate the human cost of a crisis fueled by greed, risky financial practices, and a lack of regulatory oversight. But these stories also serve as a reminder of the resilience and strength of those who weathered the storm, rebuilding their lives and moving forward in the face of adversity. Part 5. The TARP Strikes Back In late 2008, with major financial institutions on the brink of collapse, and the global economy teetering, the U.S. government stepped in with a bold and controversial plan. The Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP, signed into law by President George W. Bush on October 3, 2008, aimed to prevent a complete financial meltdown by providing emergency funding to struggling banks and other financial institutions. The initial proposal called for the U.S. government to spend up to $700 billion to purchase toxic assets primarily mortgage-backed securities, from troubled banks in an effort to free up their balance sheets and restore their ability to lend. But, as the crisis deepened, the focus of the program shifted to injecting capital directly into banks by purchasing preferred shares, effectively partially nationalizing some of the largest financial institutions in the country. The idea of using taxpayer money to bail out the very institutions that had contributed to the crisis was met with outrage from many quarters. To get a better understanding of the public sentiment at the time, let's hear from Mike, a small business owner who was struggling to keep his doors open during the recession. I remember watching the news and seeing these big banks getting billions of dollars in bailouts. Meanwhile, my business was on the verge of closing, and nobody was there to help me. It was infuriating. It felt like Wall Street was getting a free pass, while Main Street was left to suffer. Despite the public backlash, supporters of TARP argued that the program was necessary to restore confidence in the financial system and prevent an even worse economic collapse. But TARP was not without its challenges and controversies. One of the most contentious aspects of the program was the issue of executive compensation. Many Americans were outraged to learn that some of the executives at bailed-out firms were still receiving large bonuses, even as their companies were being propped up with taxpayer money. One striking example involves a major financial institution that was among the recipients of TARP funds. The bank received approximately $45 billion in government aid in late 2008, an infusion of capital that was intended to help the struggling institution weather the storm and stabilize the financial system. As the bank's fortunes turned around, it was expected that the company would be more cautious and prudent in its management of resources, particularly when it came to executive compensation. However, just a few months later, in early 2009, 
News broke that the bank's board had approved hefty bonus packages for its top executives, totaling nearly $4 billion. This revelation sparked public outrage and became emblematic of the perceived greed and recklessness that had contributed to the financial crisis in the first place. Taxpayers who were footing the bill for the bailout could not comprehend how the very individuals who had played a role in creating the crisis were being rewarded with such staggering sums of money. One particularly outrageous anecdote from this episode involved the bank's CEO, who was slated to receive a $10 million bonus despite the company's financial struggles and the government bailout. When the news of these bonuses leaked, public sentiment turned against the CEO and the other executives who were set to benefit from these seemingly undeserved payouts. Facing mounting pressure from the public and the government, the CEO ultimately declined the $10 million bonus, though other executives still went on to receive their substantial rewards. In response, the government eventually put restrictions on executive pay for companies receiving TARP funds. Another challenge faced by TARP was transparency and oversight. The program was initially criticized for its lack of transparency and the potential for conflicts of interest. In response, the government created the Office of the Special Inspector General for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or SIGTARP, to provide independent oversight and investigate potential fraud and abuse. So, was TARP successful in achieving its goals? Let's hear from Laura, a former Treasury Department official who worked on the program. When the housing market collapsed, I was left with a mortgage I couldn't afford and a house that was worth less than what I owed. I had to face the reality that I had made some poor financial decisions. It was a tough lesson, but it taught me the importance of living within my means and being more cautious with my investments. There's one final question. Could 2008 happen all over again? Former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke, in a speech given in May 2007, stated, We do not expect significant spillovers from the subprime market to the rest of the economy or to the financial system. This statement is often referenced to illustrate the lack of foresight and underestimation of the impact that the subprime mortgage market would have on the broader economy and financial system leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. So, is the situation any different today? Many in the financial and regulatory industries will tell you that a repeat of 2008 is unlikely, given the regulatory changes and increased scrutiny on financial institutions. First and foremost, there's regulation. The aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis brought about significant regulatory reforms, including the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. These regulations were designed to increase transparency and stability in the financial system, as well as reduce the risk-taking behavior that contributed to the crisis. Financial institutions now face more stringent capital requirements and stress tests, which make it harder for them to engage in the risky practices that characterized the pre-crisis era. Now let's discuss lending standards. One of the major factors that contributed to the 2008 financial crisis was the prevalence of subprime mortgages and the lax lending standards that allowed many unqualified borrowers to obtain loans. But today, things have changed. 
Lenders have tightened their lending standards and implemented more rigorous underwriting processes, making it less likely that such a large number of risky loans will be issued. Next up, we need to consider the reduced appetite for risk. The financial crisis taught the world a harsh lesson about the dangers of excessive risk-taking, and both financial institutions and investors have become more cautious as a result. This shift in mindset has led to a more prudent approach to investment and lending, making it less likely that we'll see a repeat of the conditions that led to the crisis. Finally, let's talk about consumer awareness. The 2008 financial crisis left a lasting impression on the public's psyche, and many people are now more conscious of the risks associated with borrowing and investing. Consumers have become more financially literate and are more inclined to do their due diligence before entering into financial transactions. This increased awareness has led to a more cautious and informed approach to borrowing and investing, which also helps to prevent a repeat of the pre-crisis conditions. So, to sum it up, the general view is that a repeat of 2008 is unlikely due to stricter regulation, improved lending standards, reduced appetite for risk, and increased consumer awareness. While it's always important to be vigilant and monitor economic indicators, it's reassuring to know that the lessons learned from the 2008 financial crisis have resulted in a more stable and transparent financial system. Or have they? Are banks back to their old tricks? And could this cause another financial crisis similar to the one we experienced in 2008? Now let me preface this by saying it's always tricky to predict the future with certainty. However, it's essential to be aware of potential warning signs that might indicate that some financial institutions are engaging in risky behavior. So let's dive into some areas of concern. First up, let's talk about corporate debt. In recent years, we've witnessed a significant increase in corporate debt, reaching historically high levels. Many companies have taken on substantial debt at low interest rates, which might become problematic if interest rates rise or if we experience an economic downturn. One segment of the market in particular has seen a surge in issuance, high-yield bonds, also known as junk bonds. These bonds are issued by companies with lower credit ratings meaning they come with a higher risk of default. The fact that investors are willing to accept these riskier bonds can be a red flag that we should pay attention to. Now, moving on to our second point, lending standards. Some financial experts have raised concerns that lending standards have become more relaxed since the 2008 financial crisis. A notable example is the rise of covenant light loans, these loans come with fewer protections for lenders, such as the lack of financial maintenance covenants, and could be a sign that banks are willing to take on more risk. If borrowers default on these loans, the lack of protection could mean more significant losses for the lenders, creating a domino effect similar to what happened during the 2008 crisis. Another area to keep an eye on is the housing market. While regulations have tightened since the 2008 crisis, there are concerns that housing prices in some areas have reached unsustainable levels. If there is a significant market correction, it could have a ripple effect on the broader economy. Lastly, let's not forget the role of complex financial instruments like derivatives. 
While regulators have taken steps to increase transparency and reduce risk in the derivatives market, the sheer size and complexity of these instruments still pose potential threats to financial stability. It's essential for regulators and market participants to stay vigilant and continuously assess the potential risks these instruments may pose. It's crucial to remember that these are just a few warning signs that we need to keep an eye on. As we wrap up this episode on the 2008 financial crisis, it's crucial to recognize the lasting impact the crisis has had on our society and our economy. It is our responsibility to learn from the past and strive to build a more resilient financial system that can withstand future challenges. And don't forget to subscribe to Money Mayhem so you can listen to new episodes in this and other series dropping every Friday. Whether you're an aspiring financial wizard, a seasoned investor, or just a curious soul looking to learn from the past, there's something in this roller coaster ride for everyone. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on all the thrilling episodes in our series. And one last shout out. If you found our episodes both enlightening and entertaining, please consider leaving a tip in our virtual tip jar via the link in the description. Giving from as little as a single dollar and beyond will help support our mission to provide quality, engaging, and informative content that educates and empowers. Every little bit counts, and we greatly appreciate your support in helping us keep the conversation going. Until next time, may your financial journey be filled with excitement, adventure, and, most importantly, wisdom.